Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts, Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens, discuss tax-advantaged investment strategies to help you grow your wealth. From commodities to real estate, private equity, agribusiness, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're going to be talking about private real estate debt and how it can be a part of your portfolio. And with me today, I have Austin Carlson, who is the Managing Director and Head of Sales and Investor Relations at Parkview Financial. So Austin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Appreciate you guys having me. Absolutely. So, you know, let's let's dive right in. So I think even among accredited investors and, and some more sophisticated investors, yeah. uh, a lot of investors are used to investing in real assets and real estate on the equity side of deals or in equity funds. Um, mm-hmm. So what's the appeal of private real estate debt? You know, why now? Why should this be a part of a high net worth or a very high net worth investor portfolio? Yeah, I mean, the answer quickly in, in bullet point form is um, cash flow and risk reward profile, right? So um, I'll dig into those just a little bit. So when, just as you alluded, when you uh, analyze the average high net worth investors portfolio, right? Of course, there's alternatives and then there's real estate exposure. But most of the time that exposure comes in the form of, you know, maybe they own an apartment building or something on their own directly. Um, public REITs tend to be the most common one. And again, most commonly those are on the equity side of the capital structure, meaning ownership. Um, and so what you don't find though is debt side exposure. So what does debt provide you? So debt, of course, are just loans on individual properties or construction projects, which is where Parkview specializes, which we'll get into here shortly. Um, But with that, there's a cash stream, right? There's cash flow. So origination fees, monthly interest collections on a quarterly basis, those will then be distributed out to investors. So it's a a cash flow stream. When you look at yields at other asset classes that you could possibly invest in, corporates, municipals, treasuries, you name it, we all know that those yields have been extremely depressed for quite some time. Um, So stretching out a little bit into real estate debt, let alone construction, which is again, which is what Parkview focuses on, right? You can get those cash yields up to 10, 11, 12% or even a little bit better net, um, you know, and those are annualized of course. Uh, But the other side though is the risk reward. So in a market dislocation, we go into a recession, for example, let's say hypothetically, um, property valuations take a hit. When you're on the equity side of capital structure, you're gonna feel that, right? Um, On the debt side though, worst case scenario, if we have to take back an asset and we did our underwriting appropriately, we're taking back an asset at 60 cents on the dollar, meaning our basis is very strong in the deal. And then that gives us a lot of optionality, right? We could sell the note itself at a premium and make some money. We could actually foreclose and our basis is low enough again that we could then sell the asset for a profit. So it just provides you a lot of optionality. And again, risk reward, depending on what's going on from a macroeconomic perspective. So. Got it. So I guess uh, one word answer, alpha. Um. <laughs> yes. Yes, and, I should have just let me that. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your fund structure. So I understand that it's structured as a private REIT. So um, could you tell us a little bit about the advantages of that as a wrapper? Yeah. So, you know, with the tax overhaul a couple of years ago, or I should say a handful of years ago now, right? Um, you know, with, with Trump tax overhaul, he is a real estate guy at the end of the day, right? So um, there is tax benefits to a private REIT structure. And there's really mainly in two forms. 
whether you're a taxable or tax deferred slash tax exempt investor. So take the latter for a second. If you're tax deferred, tax exempt, uh, meaning your IRAs or an endowment or something like that, your Roth IRA as well, um, there's no UBTI or any sort of that sort of income that you'd have to be worried about. Now on the taxable side, say your family trust and LLC and your personal name investment, any income that comes from a private REIT, there's a 20% deduction on that income. So for example, very simply, you generate $100 of income from a fund a year, you're going to be taxed on $80 of it. So it's a free 20%, if you will, right? So which is a nice benefit. You know, there's been talks about when uh, Biden came in that they were going to do away with that. That kind of ended and died right there. Um, so it's still a great tax benefit uh, for, for investors. Yeah, you know, I, I think we heard buzz about maybe the, the 1031 getting overhauled. So it seems like there's a lot of these sort of real estate uh, yeah. tax advantage things in the code that are, I think people were more worried about maybe nine or 12 months ago. Yeah. And and, and now that the economy is, has hit a rough patch and, you know, I think it's fair to say that the administration has maybe hit a political rough patch. The upside is that yeah. um, I don't think we're as worried about some of these tax benefits going away in the near term. Yeah. You know, the big tailwind that we have, and we'll get into this further in the conversation too, though, is that municipalities around the country are providing very large tax incentives for developers to build, right? There's just a lack of housing in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you may have seen in the headlines right now, there's this big tax incentive in New York City to provide affordable housing. Tax incentive might be going away. It might be expiring here in the next couple of months. And so it doesn't look like the, the state of uh, New York is going to continue that tax benefit. Um, which is a bummer, right? Because that's how just a lot of stuff gets built. Now, right. as you can see the pros, right? Things are getting built, more affordable housing. Now the, the cons and the people who don't want it to pass are saying, hey, uh, it really only benefits the rich, which they're trying to uh, kind of change that narrative and they're trying to quit that, uh, those benefits. So again, there's just a lot of political biases and, and a little political game of tug and war going on. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's generally speaking, you know, from a tax perspective, real estate's always been pretty beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, on the note of, of, of back to just the, the core appeal of yeah. private real estate debt. So this, this is kind of interesting. I mean, it, even though I'm the founder of AltsDB, I love Alts. I'm actually historically have been a big proponent of a 60-40 portfolio, even for like a young investor, just like sure. keep it keep it simple. Uh, keep, you know, set up a portfolio that helps you sleep at night that you're not going to mess with, like, you know, at at the wrong time, like when the market tanks, you're not going to sell everything. But more and more lately, uh, not just at AltsDB, but um, other investors, other advisors, it seems like I'm hearing more about like a a 50, 30, 20 portfolio mix, where it's like, everybody just acknowledges that, Real assets have a place in a portfolio. I actually just had Meb Faber of uh, Cambria Funds on the show. Okay, yeah. And and he talked about the Talmud portfolio. So this is a portfolio model that's literally 2,000 years old um, that he referenced. And again, it was like one third, essentially, conceptually, one third reserves, which is like bonds, one third business ventures, you know, stocks, and then one third real assets or real estate. So yeah. when I'm thinking about... Sorry to get all theoretical. I just, I love. Oh no, yeah. I like it. <laughs> portfolio. Okay. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a finance nerd at heart, so it's okay. <laughs> it, it, exactly. Exactly. This is how I nerd out. Um, yeah. 
if I'm looking at private real estate debt, is that more of a bond substitute or do you consider that more a part of like the real asset mix? Yeah. That? You know, I come from the school that, um, so just my background really quick is I started my career at JP Morgan in New York, right? Um, the private bank specifically. So ultra high net worth individuals, families, institutions, um, you know, and very early on, it's alternatives is never a replacement, right? It's always a compliment. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you think about your fixed income portfolio and you think about real estate debt and how it fits, it's just a compliment, right? Because it's a cash flow stream at the end of the day. Um, and so, yeah, definitely 100%. I would say that that complements kind of that fixed income bond portfolio. Um, and, you know, and you have a lot of opportunities. And, you know, I was just reading an article in the Wall Street Journal today, actually. Um, about, you know, you see a lot of these big time private equity shops, uh, hedge fund managers, they're coming out with these funds that are more of like 40 act funds, if you will, right? Lack of a better term, um, but for the accredited investors. So where the asset class of traditionally investing in private equity, you know, you have to have 250, $500 million ticket sizes. You got to be a qualified purchaser. Um, you know, they're kind of scaling that down because there's a whole lot of market of, you know, what they're calling the million dollar net worth investor. Um, that you could really tap. I mean, it's over a trillion dollar market that they could start tapping into. And so I always think about these different things and rounding out that ALS portfolio, kind of little pieces here to complement the more broader strategies that you alluded to, right? So, you know, whatever the ratio mix that you want to have between stocks and bonds, adding ALS in there to complement those strategies, because they're just going to do different things at different times and more of that sleep at night mentality that you were talking about. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, you know, when I'm thinking of like a, a 50, 30, 20 portfolio, yeah. I, th I think for most investors, so this would fit more into the 20. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, it, it might be a complement to other types of alts. So I, I think uh, it's it's like an addition to not an instead of um, sort of thing. But, you know, yeah, exactly. the yields that you're describing, I, I think, are incredibly appealing right now. Uh, I just recorded an episode as a guest on Jimmy Atkinson's podcast, uh, the, the Opportunity Zones podcast. Yeah. We, we talked about financial repression and uh, what effects that has on all of these different uh, products. Um, you know, so we're, we're in the situation where CPI is in the eights, right? Yeah. And depending on who you talk to, if you look at the PPI or, you know, uh, other ways to measure inflation, you know, it's, it's knocking on double digits. Uh, whereas bond yields, uh, even though interest rates have ticked up a, a little bit, they were so low. I mean, yeah. they were they were virtually zero or <laughs> negative in real terms um, that, that we're still in the situation of financial repression sure. where, you know, you're, you're parking your money in bonds as an investor and you're seeing it shrink in real terms year yeah. over year. So, you know, how does this given that, you know, the yields that you're describing, they're one of the rare yields that's actually in excess of the CPI yeah. rate. Um, how does that situation affect your strategy or, or does it? You know, um, the reason I'm pausing is because there's a couple of ways to think about this, right? Um, the So from the yield component of, of the fund for the, just from off the top, right? Um, you know, so historically we've done 12, 13% net yields to investors. Now, um, again, 90% of our portfolio, 95% of our portfolio is ground up construction financing, right? So that's going to be more expensive than the bridge guys, right? And so when you look at uh, a bridge fund, like a fix and flip strategy or value add real estate debt strategy, 
right? Those yields are five to seven, somewhere in that range, right? It's just cheaper money. Right. Uh, you would think if you're taking construction risk, uh, you should be paid for it. And that's exactly what's happening here. Now, at, at Parkview, we were originally developers. We were builders ourselves. That's our core. And we moved over to becoming a lender post away. Uh, you know, the principal family behind Parkview um, started to see the writing on the wall at that time. And I'm digressing here, but I'll get it back in, on track here in just a second. Um, but no, I, I want to hear about the writing on the wall. I, I yeah, well, they, you know, it, it, you just start to look and in every cycle, right? Valuations just start to become silly. And, you know, yeah. other lenders are making ridiculous loans at ridiculous valuations that just don't compute. Um, you know, and, and Paul was starting to see it. Paul Rahimian, the founder and CEO. And he said, you know what? I'm done being a developer. I'm going to sit back, let the dust settle, um, which was a good call. And he was unlevered. We're very leverage averse on our side as well as a fund now today as where Parkview is today. Um, and by December of 09, it was actually Paul's father who had the idea to start lending on construction projects. You know, the joke is, you know, Paul thought he was crazy, but they did their first deal and they fell in love with the space. So, you know, we were a, a single family office, if you will, for the first five years. And then we launched the fund in July of 15 and started accepting outside capital. Um, but yeah, you know, given the expertise that we have, it was a natural migration, right? We have the ability in the team of the construction team and underwriters, loan originators, all in-house. We don't third party any of that stuff. So, um, you know, it, it's our core competency and it's what our history is. And so being a construction lender, like we don't see construction as, as, as a risk, right? Right. It's because it's a space we understand. So if you underwrite properly and you deploy your capital properly, properly, and you always are your focus on your asset type and your basis, you're going to be fine, right? Because the way to sum up Parkview in one sentence is what I like to say is we're an asset-based lender, extremely focused on our basis. And so by basis, I mean your price per square foot or your LTV or however you want to think about it, because it just opens up a world of opportunity if you have to then take one back at, at, at any given point, right? Um, you know, in the seven years of the fund, we've done over 180 loans. We've only taken back two, um, you know, and they're both profitable. We're about to uh, profit off the second one here momentarily um, in the next couple of months. But um, so now going, going back to your question, that's just how we get the yields that, that we had, because I want to set that table here, here for a second. But in terms of inflation, so our notes to our borrowers are floating. Um, they're usually based on, and some lenders do this, some don't. Um, if somebody's going to do fixed, you'll see that note rate a little bit higher just because the borrower is going to pay for that fixed rate optionality. Uh, for us, they're, they're based on SOFR, like LIBOR is gone. So everything is based on SOFR today. Um, and SOFR has a floor. So we'll say we'll price the loan at SOFR with a 1% floor, and there's going to be an 8% spread on top of that. So you're basically, they're effectively playing 9% to start. And if SOFR goes above 1%, the 30-day moving average, which it has now, I think it's 1.08, if a couple of basis points. So yeah. then that note then becomes floating. So from an investor, that all sounds good. That's a, that's a tailwind, right? Great. My, my quarterly distribution should go up. Now, the tailwind to that, or I'm sorry, the headwind to that is, well, if the borrower's expense, interest expense to their lender is going up, chances are there's other aspects in their project that are also becoming more expensive. Mm -hmm. So now in our initial underwriting and ongoing underwriting as through the project is continuing to be built, we need to make sure that that borrower is well capitalized to deal with those price increases, right? Part of its inflation. So for us being the construction lender, we're typically refinanced out and paid off before the appliances, bathtubs, sinks, right? Those are the things that you're really seeing the inflation pressure on, right? They're coming overseas, supply chain issues, but a lot of the concrete, plywood, two by fours, um, that, a lot of that stuff is, is, is made 
here in, in the US and traveled by train or something like that, right? More often than not. I know there's um, not a, that's not always the case, but again, more often than not. So, um, you know, we're usually taken out of the deal where, where the borrower themselves really starts to see those inflation pressures on, again, microwaves, stoves, TVs, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so hopefully that answers your question, but happy to go into deeper. No, it, it does. And so tell me a little bit about the life cycle of a deal. Uh, so like yeah. with a, a construction loan, is that typically 36 months or, or how long until uh, Parkview is, is paid back fully? Yeah, good question. Uh, I'm going to preface that really quick by just giving you a quick overview of just kind of the life cycle from a lender's perspective of a development project, right? Uh, very simply, there's, there's the land lenders that helps the developer acquire the land itself. Because during this time, then once they've acquired the land, they have to get the permits, the entitlements, everything approved by the city, which takes time, takes a couple of years. Once they're ready to start digging and go vertical, in comes the construction lender. And that's, that's where Parkview sits. Once the construction risk has been taken out of the deal, meaning foundation, uh, framing, roofing, HVAC system, electrical, plumbing, the sheetrock's been put up, the quote unquote construction risk has been taken out of the deal. And that's when a bridge lender will start to get comfortable because at that point you're doing flooring, sinks, bathtubs, right? Again, quote unquote, the easier part. Um, so that's where though the borrower will look to cheaper money, like a bridge lender at five, 6% money, which is cheaper than the nine, nine and a half they're paying us. Mm -hmm. Then we get refinanced out. And then from there, once they've got the certificate of occupancy and the assets been stabilized, meaning it's been leased up, then that's the more permanent money, bank, agency money, bank ready, right? All that kind of stuff. Um, okay. So, um, the life cycle for a loan for us, when a deal is signed at, at LOI staged by our own originators, the average note tenor is about 24 months. Okay. Uh, and on that agreement, there's usually like two six month extensions, and then there's a fee to utilize those. Those are fully at Parkview's discretion. So if they're not making progress, we're going to deny their construction or their extension request, as an example. Um, but in actuality, the effective duration in the portfolio historically over the last seven years since inception has been about eight, 17, 18 months. So 17, 18 months to get that construction risk taken out that I was mentioning a few moments ago, um, that, that's essentially, you know, kind of more short-term duration loans, right? At 17, 18 months. So again, and that's all goes into the conversation too about inflation and what the yield curve is going to be doing and over time. So we're on the, the lower the lower end of the yield curve. Um, yeah, so we're absolutely. Three, five-year, 10-year risk here. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's amazing. You know, thinking about that sort of yield uh, with the duration of, of 18 months, but yeah. you know, on that note, on, on the note of inflation, I got to ask, are you, are you on team transitory? And, and let me, let me preface that. Yeah. Well, no one's on team transitory anymore in terms of, you know, we're, we're about to flip back, but do, do you see inflation returning to, let's say, you know, the, the four-ish range in let's say the next 12 months, or do you think it's going to stay elevated even, you know, past a year from now? Yes. We're in the bandwagon that it's going to stay higher for a little bit longer. Um, and this was before even, even Jenny Yellen just came out and said, I don't know if you, again, another article in the journal, uh, expecting high, higher inflation for quite some time. And so, I mean, we're definitely in that camp. Um, oddly enough, though, you starting to see construction costs come down a little bit in themselves, which is interesting. Um, you know, they were elevated during COVID, just of all the issues that, that that brought, right? It's hard to remember two and a half years ago or two years ago at this point. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting, right? And there's, there's labor shortages and stuff, at least in construction that we need to focus on. But yeah, from an inflation perspective, I mean, with the, the Fed shrinking their balance sheet, which is going to take time, 
um, you know, the rising rates. And I mean, another article in the journal today, I mean, I sound like, a, again, I told you I'm a finance nerd, right? So I'm always keeping track of what's happening in the journal, but um, commercial real estate sales have, have come down, right? Are starting to slow a little bit just because uh, there's less buyers at certain valuations and they're trying to get financing and the deal just doesn't pencil anymore um, with higher rates, with higher monthly interest expense. So, um, you know, it's going to stick around for a little bit longer, but uh, hopefully we can keep it in check. Yeah. I mean, you know, hopefully I, I keep saying it's uh, we're looking for that Goldilocks, but uh, yeah. it, it's not a great Goldilocks though. Right. Because we're stuck between high inflation and a recession and it might be, yeah. might be a mild recession or a mini recession or whatever, whatever you want to call it that moderates inflation, not even to like a low level, but to like a medium high level. And, you know, I was, the other day I was uh, listening to the radio um, and I heard like three or four car commercials in a row. And I was like, wait, what's going on? I thought that all these uh, car dealers had no cars to sell. So it, it kind of feels like with the economic news and you're referencing the journal, I'm getting a lot of mixed signals uh, in terms really of, weird. yeah, it, yeah. It, it, exactly. And it feels a, a little to me, like there's like an air pocket with, with valuations um, that that there's price discovery going on right now. Yeah, you know, in, in our internal meetings here, I feel like I've been saying it forever, but the music is gonna die because the consumer can't sustain the economy forever, right? And that's essentially what's been happening in a nutshell. The consumer, um, even through COVID, which people didn't think was gonna happen, which even, you know surprised us for how strong the consumer maintained through COVID, broadly speaking, and I know there were pain points, and I want to acknowledge that, but um, broadly speaking, which is pretty amazing, yeah, but it, it can't last forever, right? So the amount that the we're consumer spending at, at the rate we're at versus you're not seeing wage growth, you're not seeing other things to continue, it, 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 the music's going to stop, right? And it's just to the magnitude, how deep is it going to cut? Um, you know, we're in the tune that it's going to be a decently mild recession, right? It shouldn't be too painful. Mm -hmm. like, take that with a grain of salt, but, um, you know, you always be careful of what you wish for, right? Because also, at least in our industry, there's a lot of lenders out there, period. There's a lot more that in this industry than there has been uh, previously. Uh, a lot of investor capital, given the yields that we've already talked about, has flocked to this space. So there's just increased competition out there for us to win deals, the best deals. And, you know, and it pushes rates down that we can charge, of course. Competition is healthy, no question. But it gave rise to, quite frankly, and I'm just going to be blunt, a lot of the lenders that we see that don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I, and, um, you know, as an investor, you got to be careful for that, right? You got to be very careful and understand how the sponsor, how the lender is coming up, A, with the deals, what's their valuation method? Because I could tell you, like our, our uh, and I'll give you an example. Our blended LTV in the portfolio is 63%, but those are future value estimates or Estimates from our at any given point in construction, they're not somebody else's, right? They're not a third party appraisal. Mm. Yeah, third that's party. So that's from your own, your own. That's from our own, our own underwriting analysis. That's right. But we do get third party appraisals for because of the, the bank, and you know, we'll, I'm assuming we'll talk about leverage and stuff and, and the effects of that. But so we have a warehouse facility that we use just to help fill in the cash flow gaps. Like we don't lever up the fund in the traditional sense to boost returns. We just use a bank line to help fill in the cash flow gaps because construction, there's cash in and out on a daily basis. Um, but um, I forgot what I was going to say now. I went off on a small tangent and then <laughs> it's gone. 
Well, we, we were talking about just, you know, there's, there's frankly, there are, you know, the, all of these spaces, it sounds like on the debt side as well, but on the equity side, uh, valuation has got so high. So many people enter the space chasing, I would say chasing what they think is easy money is not necessarily yeah. easy Correct. money. And so we've seen cap rates just compress uh, crazy. I mean, I, I think they, yeah. they've gotten so, somewhat crazy. So in my view, you know, if you see the cap rates just ease up just a tiny bit, it's like everybody can like breathe a little easier, but you know, I, I hate to say it. Um, I want to see a, a 10, 20% correction in a lot of ways. Sure. Uh, sure. If, if you have any dry powder, if you are a net saver, uh, you don't want to see asset prices that are overpriced. Yeah, no, you value investor, right? Uh, so sorry, when I lost track, I remember what I was, I was saying there um, about third-party appraisals. So if we were to go by those, our LTV in our portfolio would be more like 55%, which sounds really low. That sounds great, but that's just not reality, right? Because, and that's the point I was trying to make there is that as an investor and you're looking at sponsors, like manager selection is real. Like that's a big thing, right? If you have 10 managers in the same space, they're all going to outperform different. They're going to perform differently. And it becomes right. down to selection at the end of the day, right? Um, and so again, as an investor and you're doing your due diligence, you got to figure out like how are the sponsor really coming up with their numbers is if I'm just going off third-party appraisals and I say our LTV is 55%, wow, that sounds really attractive. Well, you know, that reminds that's me not, with- That's not that's not real in our humble opinion. You know what with, I mean? With appraisers, it's like two two words I don't necessarily want to hear together, optimistic and appraiser. And it, it, my, my question is always, who's paying the appraiser, right? Like who, who does the appraiser uh, work for? Um well, when you, you get that, you get the, because we every once in a while, we'll get those calls and the appraiser's like, hey, what do you need this to come in at? I'm like, what? <laughs> and then it happens. It happens. It's, I mean, it makes no sense. And we're just it, like, you go tell us, you figure it out. <laughs> it, you know, that's that's just amazing. It, it happens at- um, Residential at, level, it happens at, yeah. It, exactly. I was, I was going to say, you know, my, my dad uh, appraises antique cars. And oh. so, you know, he might be- he might be appraising something at five thousand dollars, and then appraising something at fifty thousand, five million, fifty million, five hundred million, five billion. It's like it doesn't matter. You know, these are you have to look at incentives um, and, and track record. I mean, especially with alts and in, in any kind of alternative. Um, but in this space, um, I always tell people: look at sponsors, look at asset managers that have a long track record that have gone through a couple of market cycles, yeah. right? Because I think the people who have entered the space in the last three or four or five years uh, who weren't necessarily in the space in 2008, 2009, just for instance, yeah. um, you know, they, they've seen less of the, the overall potential landscape uh, yeah. that, that we can see. I mean, even broadening it out uh, again with the, with the episode I recorded with Meb Faber, this was just a couple of years ago. Um, people don't understand that, you know, the bond market, if you look at the past hundred years, some of the losses that the bond market has taken, some of the mar uh, losses that the equities market has taken, some yeah. of the losses that even like a 50-50 portfolio balance between uh, bonds and equities, the, the maximum drawdowns that they've seen over the past hundred years. So I think this yeah. is an issue when people's track record is, is too recent uh, it's like they just haven't seen enough of the landscape to have that intuition. I mean, I would almost describe it as intuition. It's like something you don't even know how to write down, uh, but you just know like this doesn't feel right. This valuation yeah. gives me that pit in my stomach. 
Yeah, you know, and it's it you make a one hundred percent valid point. Um, you know, and it and for us at Parkview, you know, like I said, Paul started doing this himself uh, at the end of '09, right? So post '08 uh, up through today, and it's been relatively bull market, right? We've had a market hiccup in fifteen sixteen, uh, COVID obviously twenty uh, and twenty and twenty twenty one, and you know we got through all those fine. Um, but also too, look back at what the sponsor was doing before that. So I mean, Paul started developing in the '90s, right? So he went right. through the 90 downturn, the 2000s, 2008 as a developer and didn't lose money, right? So from a developer standpoint, knows what he's doing, became a lender, you know, by product of the environment and uh, what it provided. But um, yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you too. So yeah, definitely the track record and what they were doing before in certain other cycles. Uh, if they weren't doing what they're doing today in those other cycles, um, just, you know, us case in point, but um, yeah, 100%. So let's talk about underwriting a little bit. And our, our yeah. sister site, uh, multifamilyinvestor.com, uh, Scott Hawksworth is the host over there. And he recently had an episode all about conservative underwriting and yeah. talking a lot about, you know, what LPs need to look into. You know, LPs don't necessarily have the experience or all of the knowledge necessary to underwrite every fund that they invest in. But mm-hmm. um, that for our listeners and viewers, that was episode number 34 at multifamily investor. Um, but, but the take home that I got from that episode was just, you know, you want to have conservative underwriting. You want to know what your assumptions are and you need to be comfortable with them internally. Um, and, and so, you know, you've described how Parkview does all of your underwriting internally and even your, your appraisals are internal. Um, would you describe your underwriting process as, you know, very conservative or conservative? Is it is it possible to be too conservative to the point where it's no longer possible to, to do any deals? You know, how, how do you look at that underwriting overall? Yeah, yeah. So the underwriting approach really takes two tracks internally with us, right? Uh, track number one is the true underwriter valuation. Every lender does it, right? Um, where you have to figure out what's your basis in the deal, your price per square foot, your LTV, Um but also you, you need to be able to structure the loan itself and the legal documents to mitigate as much risk for Parkview as we and our investors as we as we can, right? I mean, any in our legal documents, anything we could put a borrower in default if we want to do wanted to for quite a number of things, right? We don't because we want them to continue moving forward, get to a point where they can pay us off. And it, you're just gonna uh, you're gonna block the borrower from making progress, right? You're gonna you're gonna impede them more than help them, right? Um, so, but with that concurrently in track number two is the full construction analysis. So we have a full construction team here. And I don't mean the guys swinging hammers. I'm talking about the engineers, former project managers for large scale construction companies. Um, and so we actually get the drawings of the project from the developer, run through a constructability analysis, meaning, hey, can the building actually be built the way that it's designed? Structurally, is it gonna stand? Is the design itself functional for the type of asset it is? And then most importantly, our civil engineers go through and they reprice the project down to the last screw because we lend on cost to build the asset. So if we end up to 75% of cost, the other the borrower needs to bring the other 25% in the form of their equity. They need to fund that first before we ever fund a dollar. And then the nice thing too about construction and in our humble opinion is that we incrementally fund as they hit the milestones in the development. So a $20 million loan, we're not giving them 20 million day one. You know, that, that, and that's what happens on a bridge side, right? You, you basically fund the loan proceeds up front. But with construction, yeah, you, you kind of piecemeal the loan proceeds as they're hitting milestones. So if they stop hitting those milestones and they stop construction, 
right? We've just only deployed a small portion of our money and we put down the gate on them. Um, and we said, hey, we're not deploying, it, deploying any more proceeds until you continue to move forward and catch up. Um, so, but to your point, yeah, I, you know, we tend to be more on the conservative side than our peers, uh, you know, but given our construction background of the team, right, we can be very um, unique in how we structure a deal, right? We can see things a little bit differently because we are developers versus, you know, and that's why I run sales IR and fund ops, right? I'm the Wall Street guy background. What do you know about taking back a construction asset mid-construction? I, I don't, right? Um, a lot of our peers in the space are guys like me, right? I understand finance. I understand how to underwrite. I understand the numbers, but there's just a tangible aspect to it of being former developers like the rest of our team um, that, that gives some ability to be able to structure a deal in a certain way that, you know, maybe others wouldn't think of or wouldn't do, right? Um, but yeah, it, it gets to a point, there's more deal flow to answer your last question. There's more deal flow right now than we know what to do with, which is a good position to be in, right? And you know, when if we go down into an economic recession, we're in the trough and deal flow dries up and, uh, you know, and are we going to be too conservative where there's not a lot of deal flow? Maybe, potentially, that's okay. I'd rather have years of lower yield performance in a downturn than have to take back 10, 20, 30 assets, right? I, I just right. rather, um, and I'll take that trade all day long and I know the rest of the team would. So that's Okay. Um, and if we have to return investor capital too, because there's not deal flow and it's either that return capital or, or sit on capital and deplete performance, like I'll, we'll return capital too, because I think longer term investors are going to appreciate that. And when the cycle evolves again, because it always does, it always has historically, no reason why to think that it won't again. Um, right. Times are good again and deal flows there and we're raising money again. I think investors would appreciate uh, the, the decisions that we made uh, in the fund. So. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, our show is mostly geared towards LPs and advisors, but I know we have a few sponsors and developers, at least that listen to the show. So could I ask what's, what's your sweet spot for a project? Like what type of project, yeah. what size? Yeah, good question. So we stick to the four main food groups of commercial real estate. So multifamily office, industrial retail. Um, you know, we tend to, we stick away. I shouldn't say we tend, we do. We stick away from uh, hospitality, which served us very well in 2020, 2021. Um, but we stick also stick away from hospitals, assisted living, uh, churches, temples, anything you need to run a specific business in. Because back to your underwriting question, when we underwrite, we have to stress test, right? And by that, I mean, okay, great. They're 30% done with construction. They've defaulted. We take it back in foreclosure. Now what, right? Is it an asset that we want to own? Is it an asset that we can finish construction on ourselves? Because Parkview brings that optionality to the table. Um, is it an asset that if we're still in the trough of an economic cycle and the project is done, can we lease it up? And can we operate it for a period of time until the cycle evolves again and we can make a premium? And then if it's too specific, then you lose that optionality, right? Bingo, right? Because what? Uh, very simply put, 12-month leases in a multifamily asset is much easier to operate than a night over turnover in a hotel, right? So um, that's kind of the way to think about it. And in you know, if Paul were on this call too, he would say, I like to lend on stuff I've built myself. So very simply. Awesome. Um, does the fund use leverage? Uh, good question. So I think I, I briefly mentioned it will fill in the cash flow gap. So we have an overarching warehouse facility, 200 million um, that will draw on and pay back daily, just depending on what cash flows of the fund. Um, so historically speaking, we've been about 12, 13% levered. And the way you get to that number is since inception, the average running balance of the bank line 
divided by the average running balance of our AUM, you get 12, 12 12.5%. Um, so relatively un unleveraged strategy. Um, you know, and then usually the next question I get is people are like, well, how do you get to double digit return? Uh, and that's a good question without leverage is that it's a really a four-legged stool. One is we charge an origination fee on the loan itself when the loan closes. So if it's two, two and a half percent on the total loan commitment, we collect that income on day one uh, when the loan closes. Uh, monthly interest collections on deployed capital. So as uh, loan proceeds are dispersed, right, they'll pay their monthly interest on that. Uh, the warehouse facility, it adds a little bit, you know, 50, 75, 50 to 75 basis points of uh, performance a year. It's not much, but it means something, right? Um, but the fourth leg of that stool is our ability to recycle capital. And that's the big one, right? Um, and I'll give you a quick, simple math scenario. So you do a $10 million loan, two years in duration. The origination fee is 3%. Okay, you collect that up front on the 10 million. Now, because when the construction risk is taken out of the deal, we tend to get paid off because we touched on that earlier. So, but to keep the math easy, now let's say at month 12, and we've deployed 5 million, we get paid off. So mathematically, that origination fee is the equivalent of six. Now you just received your money paid back much sooner than you thought you would. You recycle that into the next deal, collect an origination fee. You know, we have 65, 65 deals in the portfolio. So you do that frequently. Um, and it's just our ability to re recycle capital. And, and so, so you're you're telling me that uh, LPs this is a this is an opportunity for LPs to love the word uh, origination fee. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, the difference between debt, right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Sorry. Go right. on. Go on. No, that's no, that's a great that's a great point. Um, so yeah, you know, you just really put those four legs to the stool together, and that's really kind of how you get to the return profile we have without being an overly leveraged fund. Excellent. Well, I think a lot of our uh, listeners and audience will be interested in the Parkview Financial REIT. So where can our listeners and viewers go to learn more? Yeah, um, parkviewfinancial.com. Um, you know, my email is austin at parkviewfinancial.com. Very simple. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of our stuff is on there. You see some recent deal history. You'll see the team on there. Um, read a little bit more about our history. Yeah, and if anybody's interested, feel free. They can reach out to me directly. Um, you know, there's a link on there for more information. You can do it that way. And it comes to the website straight to me, uh, whatever's the easiest people I've interested in. Um, you know, as you mentioned, there might be developers out there too, looking for capital by all means, we have our own originations team in house. Um, and Brad Ross runs that and you can see him on the website, uh, that side of the business for us. So, um, yeah. Excellent. Well, for our listeners, if you want links to all of the resources we discussed today, including all of those links that, that Austin described uh, with, with Parkview Financial. Make sure to check out our show notes at altsdb.com slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on YouTube and your favorite podcast platform so that you can receive our new episodes as we release them. Austin, thanks again for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you, Andy. I greatly appreciate it. And thank you, everybody, for watching and listening. And uh, look forward to speaking to you all soon. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.